Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery, BTR.org. I'm Anne. I'm sure you remember what it was like when you were searching for help, maybe for your husband, hoping to find the right program or therapist. That's why I started podcasting. I supported my husband through seven years of pornography addiction recovery, and not one therapist during that time told me I was experiencing emotional and psychological abuse and sexual coercion. I didn't want any other woman on the planet to be in the dark. If you're like the majority of my listeners, you're experiencing the type of abuse that's invisible and difficult to wrap your head around. Your husband is using porn or having affairs or lying to you, and you're getting the same bad advice about how to improve communication or your relationship. If you need support from women who totally understand, check out our daily group session schedule at btr.org group. We'd love to see you in a session today. One simple anonymous way to help spread the word is to click, follow, or subscribe to the Betrayal Trauma Recovery Podcast on your favorite podcasting app. While you're there, every five-star rating helps make this podcast more visible and will help save other women from getting the wrong kind of help, like a couple program that will make this type of abuse worse. For those of you who follow or subscribe to this podcast, thank you so much. Your support means so much to me. I have Nora Taylor on today's episode. She is a 45-year-old academic and solo mother of three boys who lives in New England. She's also a victim of betrayal and emotional, psychological, and financial abuse. Her ex-husband, who is a former police officer and diagnosed on the autism spectrum, is currently serving a sentence in federal prison after a child pornography conviction. Events revealed that the illegal behavior likely began before the 18-year relationship started in their college years, and the marriage unraveled when blame-shifting, lying, gaslighting, and infidelity escalated during Taylor's third pregnancy. Her ex-husband has staunchly denied knowing anything about the child sexual abuse material on his computer and has insisted that Taylor is responsible for quote-unquote planting it there in an effort to extort assets and secure child custody during their divorce. Taylor is a member of a support group for mostly women co-parenting with an ex-partner on the spectrum and is committed to understanding and educating herself and others on the intersection of autism and abuse in romantic relationships. Welcome, Nora. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. We are glad to have you. This autism question is really interesting because as women are trying to figure out what is going on, like, is he an addict? Does he have a personality disorder? Some women also end up with maybe an autism diagnosis with their husband. And they start going down that path a little bit. So I think a lot of women will be really interested in your story and also the takeaways that you have found, the ways that you have processed this. When we're talking about autism, how do you believe autism played a role in your ex-husband's abuse and betrayal? I'm thinking about all of the lists that you just made, and I went down all those paths too. And autism ended up being where I landed. And before I go any further, there's this often quoted autism advocate you've possibly heard of, I think he's at Adelphi University, Dr. Stephen Shore, who says, when you've met one person on the spectrum, you've met one person on the spectrum. And I by no means mean to suggest that every person on the spectrum is like this. Every person is different. I have so many friends from all my research and learning and support who have autism, have children on the spectrum. I'm talking specifically about what I learned about my ex. There are some traits that I think stand out for him and for some of the people in my support group as well, their partners or ex-partners. And I can run through a list of a few of them and we can kind of 
maybe talk a little bit about how they intersect with his behavior. Primarily, I saw a lot of mind blindness with him. He didn't seem to understand that I had feelings that were different from his. He had a very rules-based, logical way of thinking that didn't tap into his emotions or mine, or he wasn't aware of them as keenly as I think we would have needed it to be for us to be on the same page. He was highly anxious all the time about things that didn't necessarily worry me. He wasn't capable of compromising very often. Context blindness was another aspect of his profile that, you know, it was the forest for the trees issue that he really couldn't see what I call the connective tissue between decisions that we were making or things we were arguing about. He cannot take responsibility for his own actions. That's one of the primary issues. He believes he's always right, despite plenty of evidence. And maybe the most central issue that I didn't see fully for what it was for the duration of our marriage is that people on the spectrum often have a special interest and it's very often a very positive thing for them uh, that it you know gives them a space to go to kind of decompress and be able to engage in a social way again you know kind of recharge their batteries and he had lots of them and there were some interesting ones that even once we shared like hiking and wine tasting but unfortunately, I think the primary one for him and the most long lasting one was something that I don't even know that I can categorize completely because I could say that it's porn, I could say that it's child sexual abuse material, but it's also just an interest in, in women in general and, and girls. So he had a hard drive filled with images of girls, clothed and so legal and then clearly illegal and abusive materials. But you can see this whole cluster, you know, he spent our entire marriage thinking any emotion that I had that he couldn't understand was wrong. So I was just whining. So if I was hurt by the time he spent on his computer, even if I wasn't aware fully of what he was doing, it was pressure on him. And if he didn't understand my feelings about wanting something small, like where we would go on a trip to something large, like decisions about having a child, he just couldn't plug into that because it wasn't logical to him that it wasn't an acceptable feeling and an acceptable thing to discuss and pursue. You know, it's interesting to hear that list. I want to reiterate that this is not a podcast that is connecting autism with abuse, right? This is not an episode where we are saying that autistic people are abusive. Right. So that's that's not the point of this episode. But I do really want to talk about some of the things that you just said on that list are the traits of abusers who do not have autism. For example, they can't have empathy with other people. They sort of see other people as objects. They don't have a feeling that other people are real or they can't understand their point of view and things like that. That's one reason why women wonder sometimes, is my husband autistic? Who knows if they are or they're not? It seems like women would prefer their husband with these specific traits to be autistic rather than abusive because of the consequences, because of what it means. If there's kind of a reason for it and there's a way to manage it, Maybe they don't have to get divorced or their family doesn't have to fall apart, for example. But if it's abuse, there's just no way around that because that would mean that that person is making those choices. And I don't really know where I want to go with this, but do you have any thoughts? It's something that I've grappled with too, because I've, I thought, you know, personality disorder, narcissism, abuse, abuser, and I have fallen in the camp of believing 
he was abusive, but it comes down to intent and understanding. And, you know, I'm not in his head, so I don't know. I've only done as much research as I can and loved him for as long as I did, wanting to fix things. And yes, buying into this idea that, oh, it's autism. We can, we can address this now because we know what it is. But he would have to accept that diagnosis for us to work together. Both of us would, and only one of us was accepting it. But I never will know for sure to what degree he intended to harm anyone me, our children, and certainly I don't know if he truly understands that in this case it's girls, right? It's female victims of, of all ages, really, whether he understands the harm. He says he does in his in his courtroom testimony, but I think he follows a script a lot of the time. It was. It was something I clung to. But the reality is that he wasn't willing to buy into it, and nothing is really going to change. Unfortunately, he was not diagnosed till his 40s. He's hardwired anyway. The autism is, you know, you're born with it. It is who you are. It's your neurology. But he's not inclined to explore ways in which he could be more flexible. So it's in some ways, it ends up at the end, a lot of us in my support group end up in just as much pain as anybody who has, you know, a partner who's whatever, a narcissist, what we consider to be maybe a traditional abuser, because we realize we, we've hit a dead end because we don't have a willing collaborative partner. So when he received his diagnosis, how did he think about it? As is often the case with spectrum and certainly with the way he and I interacted, he didn't really share his thoughts and he may not have had words for his feelings. So we didn't talk about it much and the, the marriage was already fairly well over and that was kind of the nail in the coffin. So I don't know fully. We drove to the assessment together. I booked it. I paid for it. I, I went home with him and he stopped and he was in tears on the drive home. But the next day it was, you know, this is not me. This is, this is you. You are just looking for an excuse to to deflect and to minimize your responsibility for the problem we have and the situation we're in now. So I don't, I, I, I don't know. I don't know that he'll ever accept it. Just a non-acknowledgement kind of that that had happened. Yeah. It was right back to the, the script that he was following for the entire time that we were breaking up, that I had done something wrong and I needed to toe the line and get my behavior back in order so that we could put our marriage back together again, that I wouldn't take responsibility. Okay. So just a few logistical questions. When he was diagnosed, how long had you been married? I think it was about, yeah, I think it was 14. Um, the marriage was already very nearly over, but we had been together 19, I believe, because we met in college. So it was a very long relationship. Okay. And how many children did you have? Our third was a year old at that point. Okay, so you had three so kids three, and, yeah. and your youngest was a year. And then I'm assuming, and correct me if I'm wrong, that throughout this 19-year relationship that you had with him, or as long as you knew him, you kind of sensed something wasn't right and you were trying to get to the bottom of it. Is that... I did, although so much of what I've learned has only been in retrospect once it really blew up. I think I thought it was normal to disagree as much as we did. It was frustrating, but I couldn't get to the bottom of it. And I wasn't aware of how pervasive it was. You know, we would 
fight over things. And sometimes I, you know, I wouldn't even walk away remembering what the argument was, but I remember the refrain being, but I feel this way. And he would respond with, well, I disagree with you. And I said, but you can't disagree with my feelings. You can feel differently than I do, but that never made sense to him. So that was kind of the core of all of our major arguments that I wasn't allowed to have a different perspective and to have a feeling about it if, if he didn't understand what that was. So it was always there from early on, but I didn't see it for what it was until things really blew up. And I said, how did this go so far sideways and started doing my research? That's really interesting because even an abuser without autism would say the same thing. Real quick before a response, there are a lot of so-called betrayal trauma therapists or coaches or groups out there, but they don't approach pornography use or infidelity as an abuse issue, or they try to quote unquote treat both the abuser and the victim in the same setting, which is unethical. So if you hear something in this episode you relate to, check out the group session schedule at btr.org group. We'd love to see you in a group session today. Now back to our conversation. You said your marriage started to fall apart and then you got this diagnosis. Were his behaviors just kind of escalating at that point? Were you thinking of divorce at this point? Like, can you just kind of maybe summarize the stage that you're calling sort of the fall apart stage? Yeah, the fall apart stage was after the birth of my second child when I decided I wanted a third child. And I mean, I guess it's the biological imperative, right? When you have those feelings, it's because, you know, nature is telling you to reproduce and send offspring into the next generation. But I didn't have a logical reason for why I wanted one and he didn't want one. So that became the fight and it just spiraled. It was the same fight as through all those years, but I held my ground with what I wanted for the first time, thinking that surely this time I will convince him. He became so stressed. And this is a very common thing that the marriage does fall apart when children come on the scene. Maybe he was more capable and that it didn't completely disintegrate with the first two, or maybe I was covering more of the load, but he just couldn't accept it as a logical outcome. But he did agree. And so I got pregnant and within months, there was a lot going on in our world. He was involved in a shooting incident and work as a person in law enforcement. So I was assuming PTSD, but he, he said, no, you're my problem. And you blackmailed me into having this child and I can't accept it. And so here I was pregnant with two little guys and he was ready to move out. And I only learned, honestly, I did not learn until two days after I testified at his federal trial that he like confirmed 100% that he was cheating, but it was during that same time period. So we were on a family vacation and he was cold and distant and, you know, all the signs that I think women, but maybe any partner who's sensitive and attuned to these things, I started guessing that he was, that he was having an affair. Um, and then, you know, when he left, left the house, he originally said, um, I was sticking him with the children as much as possible at every spare moment he had. So he didn't want them. But then I said, okay, I'll keep them. And then, then suddenly he wanted them. Mm -hmm. um, and he was mm -hmm. taking my children off to hang out with his mistress. And I had a six-year-old and he started talking about it. So that's how I, I suspected, but I kept putting it aside because I 
I wanted to believe at the time that it wasn't really happening and we could still fix the marriage. And if I didn't allow myself to believe it, then it wasn't true and we could fix the marriage. That was months and months and months before I got really suspicious about that behavior and some spending. He was, he was saying that we didn't have enough money for a third child, but he was spending a lot of money. And that's when I logged into his computer looking for evidence of whatever was going on with him. And that's when I found quite a bit of adult pornography. And then I thought it was being deleted from the hard drive. So I set it aside, turned it off, disconnected it. Still wanted to work on the marriage. This was pre-diagnosis. We decided on a divorce after his diagnosis. And his behavior was erratic then too. It was through this whole period, he would disappear with my kids and not tell me he was taking them someplace. And I thought he was taking them for good. He was just doing very suspicious things, like putting a trash can in front of my car uh, in the driveway in front of the garage door. So I would have to get out and move it when I opened the garage Mm -hmm. door or trashing the house and saying the dog spread garbage around. So he started getting really manipulative in that way, or I, I still don't quite know what that was. But ultimately, that's kind of what the lead up was. I said, I have to investigate what's on this computer because I said to myself, and this is where I think it connects with what you talk about a lot here on your podcast is that I thought surely the courts will say, well, this man has hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands anyway of images on his computer that he's downloading all the time. He can't be an effective parent and I would get custody and the kids would be safe, mm-hmm. not knowing it was illegal. But I, I had the computer investigated because I was starting to get suspicious that things were being deleted. And I had a local computer expert tell me his lawyer advised him to pay in cash and be done with it. So I sent the computer off for forensics, still not believing, still not letting myself believe any more than moments at a time and then dismissing it. And it came back with, with CSAM on it. So CSAM is the term child sexual abuse material, which is a more accurate term than child pornography because all child pornography is and ever has been is photos and videos and evidence of child abuse, child sexual abuse. So that is the term that we're going to use today is CSAM or child sexual abuse material. Many men at this stage where things are falling apart and stuff, they would not go in for a psyche valve, right? Or a, some kind of testing. So what prompted the test in the first place to, to get a diagnosis? It was, of course, my idea because I came out of a, and I think it was our second couples therapist of three. I came out of a session where the therapist was telling him, oh, well, it sounds like you had a baby with, you know, a third baby because needs were important to you and you wanted to honor those. And his immediate response was, well, no, I thought she was going to leave me if I didn't have one. So I had to. And it was just so devoid of any sort of care for me or even an awareness that he should be at least putting on a show that he cared. And it just hit me wrong. And that's where I went down the rabbit hole and hit on on the term alexithymia, which is this, this difficulty with connecting with your own feelings and the feelings of others and identifying them. And that took me to autism. It's, it's a vast majority of, of individuals on the spectrum who experience some level of this. So I pushed and he was, I think, so wholly convinced that I was the problem, that he was willing to do that because it was going to prove that 
I was the issue and there was nothing wrong with him. Okay, we're going to pause the conversation right here, but stay tuned. We're going to talk more about what happens with Nora and her story next week. If this podcast is helpful to you, please help us reach other women by following or subscribing and giving us a five-star rating. Thank you for helping other women find us. If you've already purchased a copy of my book, Trauma Mama, Husband Drama, please circle back and give it a five-star rating. A lot of women are searching for books about betrayal trauma on Amazon, and rating Trauma Mama will help them find this podcast, which is free to everyone. Your donations keep this podcast going. Go to our website, btr.org, scroll to the bottom, click on Support the BTR Podcast. And until next week, stay safe out there 